Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. If you've ever been responsible for managing a group of people, you'll understand when I say humans are complicated. As much life experience as you may have, you will always, always encounter folks who have gone through lives that are much different from yours. You consider your life to be normal. They consider their lives to be normal, too. But the gulf between these senses of what's normal can be absolutely huge. It all depends on your upbringing, your current environment, your family life, and your state of mind. There's no judgments here. These are all just statements of fact. Everybody is different. When you're a rock star, the definition of normal changes. Living in your celebrity bubble skews things. When compared to civilians, things can quickly become abnormal. Although inside of your bubble, because of your bubble, you don't realize it. It's as usual, even though those in the outside world find your life very, very weird. But even by the standards of rock star normal, which is pretty weird to begin with, the life of Scott Weiland was off the charts. I mean, when a guy like Slash takes you aside and says, dude, I'm worried, you'd better take it easy, you know that you're dealing with some extraordinary circumstances. This is the life and death of Scott Weiland, part three. This is the ongoing history of new music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Welcome again. I'm Alan Cross, and this is the third part, the third hour of our look at the life and death of Scott Weiland. He led a difficult life, so difficult that we're only up to January of 2000 after two hours. At this point, Scott was fresh out of jail. He was fresh out of rehab. He was clean. He was sober. He was ready to relaunch the Stone Temple Pilots album number four, a project that had been put on hold because of Wyland's various incarcerations. So for the relaunch, Scott and Dean DeLeo went around the U.S. playing acoustic versions of STP songs for radio stations and other media outlets. Wyland was accompanied by a minder, a guy who was supposed to keep him out of trouble. And for the most part, it worked. Scott Weiland and Dean DeLeo performing a radio session of a song called Atlanta from the number four album. It's a song with multiple meanings. It's about a drug dealer he knew in Atlanta who kept him supplied with drugs whenever the band recorded there. And it's a reference to Mary Forsberg, his then current wife, who is half Mexican. Oh, and speaking of which, now we have to get into Mary's issues because they're important to our story. Scott met Mary back in his pre-Stone Temple Pilots days when he was paid $8 an hour to drive models to their various appointments and auditions in a beat-up Chrysler, and Mary was one of those models. She was 16 at the time. But then later, he and Mary ran into each other and became a serious codependent junkie couple. A big part of their problems coping with life is that they were both undiagnosed sufferers of bipolar disorder, and this is a really important part of our story. Bipolar people experience huge swings in mood, terrible depression, and very happy high energy. They make bad judgments, they can't sleep, they don't think about the consequences of their actions, and can end up harming themselves and others. When genuine psychosis is involved, which means the person totally loses touch with reality, things can get really, really scary. Doctors originally diagnosed Mary as having severe depression and prescribed drugs to combat that. 
But just treating the lows of bipolar disorder can actually make things worse, which they did. With Scott, they did exactly the same thing, but they also had to deal with his substance abuse problems. Neither sets of treatments did anything to control his high manic episodes. So here's the situation. Scott Weiland, rich, successful rock star with access to lots of money and lots of drugs, and his wife, Mary Forsberg, a successful model making up to $25,000 a day. Both are bipolar. Both crave any drug they can get their hands on, up to and including crack, all in an effort to quiet the storms inside their heads. But there were lucid moments. On May 21st, 2000, at the Little Door restaurant in L.A., they got married. The rest of the year was filled with the Below Empty Tour, covering dozens of festivals, a road trip with the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and another with Godsmack, and it all went pretty well. Mary was about three months pregnant with her first child, a boy named Noah. She stayed 100% clean for about 18 months until he was born on November 9th, 2000, just before an STP show at the Universal Amphitheater in Los Angeles. Scott was doing well, too. But on the way home from the hospital, where his wife had just given birth, he had a dental appointment, and he came home with a prescription for Vicodin. So much for being clean. Down from STP's number four album. For the first three months as new parents, Scott and Mary moved to a rented estate in Malibu, where STP began work on an album that would eventually be called Shangri-La-Di-Da. Things moved quickly, and the album was in the stores on June 19th of 2001. This record was supposed to be a double album, something about it being a tribute to Andrew Wood of the Seattle band Mother Love Bone, who died of an overdose back in 1980, complete with a documentary film and a coffee table book. But the record company said, look, let's let's not push things. Let's just concentrate on making a solid single album so you guys can get your career back on track. Oh, and while we're on the subject, the label said, we need to come out of the gate with a really commercial song. We say that the first single will be Days of the Week. But wait, that's not what we want. We have this rocker called Coma. That, that should be the first. No argument. It's Days of the Week. Okay, and so it was. Funny how the band rarely played the song during the tour that began that summer. From Shangri-La-Di-Da, the fifth STP record in 10 years, that's Days of the Week, a single that was just too poppy for most fans. And if you paid attention to the words, yes, it was Scott singing about his heroin addiction. The overall reaction to the album was lukewarm. The tour wasn't great either, which may have contributed to some extra hard backstage partying. And because Scott seemed so unwell most of the time, tensions went up. There were fights. Sometimes things got physical, including at the very last show of the year at an arena in Texas on October the 30th. It was not good. Meanwhile, there was an incident in Las Vegas. Now, to hear Mary tell it, and just to be clear, when two junkies compare notes, dates, and events, there's an awful lot of he said, she said, Scott tried to leave the Hard Rock Hotel ahead of an STP show so he could score. When she blocked the door of the hotel room, he firmly lifted her out of the way and headed out into the hallway. Mary says that in a desperate attempt to keep Scott from using again, she called security. And they called the cops, who had Scott arrested on domestic violence charges. 
He was sent to jail and then to rehab for another 30 days. Now, if you've lost count of the number of trips to rehab, don't worry, so have I. So is everyone. But I can tell you this. Every 30-day commitment in rehab costs up to $50,000. And no, no refunds if you bailed early. Money started becoming a serious issue. When the tour finally ended, it was definitely time for a break. And maybe a breakup? Maybe, maybe not. Let's just call it a hiatus. Whatever word you want to use, the Stone Temple Pilots effectively ceased to be as of the end of 2002. And for a lot of people, that was that. Well, no, because STP being STP, there was still a lot more weirdness to come. It would just take a while to manifest. Meanwhile, though, Scott's weird ways continued. Hang on. You're listening to the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. As we moved into 2003, the assumption was that the Stone Temple Pilots were dead and that we'd hear nothing more from them anymore. After all, hadn't they been through enough? And how long could Scott Weiland survive? How long could the rest of the band put up with him? Oh, look, a greatest hits album. That's often the nail in the coffin. If your label puts out one of those, it's usually a sign that they're trying to wring a few more dollars out of your band before you're tossed on the totally useless pile. But then, Mary, Scott's wife, went out to a Dolce & Gabbana event where she ran into an old friend, also a former model. That friend was Susan McKagan, wife of Duff McKagan, ex of Guns N' Roses. Over a few glasses of wine, Susan told Mary that three guys from Guns N' Roses had kissed and made up and were forming a new band. It was Duff, Slash, and drummer Matt Sorum. Plus, they had convinced their buddy Dave Kushner of a band called Wasted Youth to join up. All they needed was a singer. Hey, would uh, Scott be interested? The guys had already tried out Josh Todd of Buck Cherry and Travis Meeks of Days of the New, and neither of them worked out. Same with Be Real of Cypress Hill. Scott, though? Maybe, said Mary. Well, have them send over some music and let Scott hear it. So they did. Mary forced Scott to listen, and he didn't like what he heard. A week later, another CD showed up. It was better, enough for Scott to agree to jam with the group at least once. He showed up several hours late because he spent the first part of the day shooting drugs. But, to Scott's surprise, the ego factor was low, and the chemistry was bang on. Besides, he'd been in rehab with Matt Sorum, so he trusted him. And all the other guys had been in trouble with drugs, too, and were all 100% clean. So, maybe this was the environment that would help him get clean, too. And besides, the money was really good. Really good. And Scott had no idea how many millions he'd already spent on drugs. Several, anyway. Let's give this a try, he said. And it worked. Until it didn't. First, there was another trip to rehab to straighten out a bit before the band got to work on their debut album. When that didn't work, Duff took him to a quiet rural place in Washington State to commune with his trainer, a martial arts expert who promised that Scott would work out his issues with some intense physical training. And to Scott's surprise, the regimen worked well enough for him to find his own trainer back in L.A., and he got straight and healthy again. To test the waters, the band recorded a couple of soundtrack songs. The first anyone ever heard of this new group was via the movie The Hulk, which came out in the summer of 2003. And it wasn't bad. Not bad at all. (laughs) 
Set Me Free, the first example of Velvet Revolver, which saw the light of day about a month after Scott was arrested again for having heroin in his car. I've lost track completely. Anyway, that resulted in probation on the condition that he stay sober. Things went so well with a couple of recordings and a few gigs that the label gave the go-ahead to record a whole album, a process that took the last six months of 2003. Wylan stayed straight, and he wrote all the melodies and lyrics for the debut album of this new band. Or so he claimed. But hang on, hang on. Hold on. Back up. October 27, 2003. While driving somewhere in Hollywood after midnight, Scott hit a parked car. He was arrested again and sent to what's called residential rehab to detox yet again. The judge said that he could leave this facility for four hours a day to finish the album with the new band. However, stories from all corners do corroborate on one thing. Scott did kick heroin during this rehab stint. Things improved with Mary. Their relationship had been on the rocks. They sold their San Diego home to pay for a bunch of bills, including some lawyers for a divorce that they were going to get, but never happened. Anyway, June 8, 2004, it was ready. A record-breaking number one debut on the U.S. charts and eventually a Grammy Award. Here's Velvet Revolver from Contraband with Slither. Now, let's be very, very honest about what Velvet Revolver was. It was a manufactured product put together as a supergroup by various managers. It was basically Guns N' Roses with Scott Weiland and some other guy. I remember hosting a press conference at around the time Contraband came out. The three Guns N' Roses guys were cool, all very friendly, all hanging out together. Dave Kushner was quiet, probably feeling like a bit of an outsider. And then there was Wyland. He was totally separate from the group. He exhibited an aloofness that resulted in a palpable tension when he was in the room. And while the rest of the band was only too happy to talk, Wyland was icy cold and completely unapproachable. The vibe felt wrong, and everyone could feel it. And no one wanted to bet on this band lasting more than one album and one tour. That, however, turned out to be wrong. Velvet Revolver held it together for five years and two albums. Another big single from Contraband was a song that Scott wrote after he was arrested on October 23, 2003, which just happened to be his 36th birthday. If you watch the video, you'll see his wife, Mary, playing the part of the lonely wife of a heroin addict. Sound familiar? A big song from Velvet Revolver's Contraband that's fallen to pieces, a hit that contributed to VR winning a Grammy Award for Best Hard Rock Performance. All right, so Wyland is clean. He's in a successful band. Money is coming in again. What could possibly go wrong? Well, everything, as a matter of fact. More in a moment. Now, back to the ongoing history of new music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Things started off rough for Velvet Revolver in 2007. Drummer Matt Sorum's little brother died of brain cancer the first week of March. A month later, Michael Wyland, Scott's younger brother, was found dead. Cause of death? Cardiomyopathy, 
a disease that affects the heart muscle. And because Michael was a heavy drug user like his brother, you can see why that would have an extra big effect. Scott was hit hard. He'd introduced Michael to drugs. They partied hard together, and now he was dead. So Scott started drinking heavily. And then the drugs started again. Scott became paranoid and tough to deal with. There was the pressure of a second child, a daughter named Lucy. There was his velvet revolver commitments. And then his wife went off the deep end hard. Now, remember at this point that Mary Forsberg was still undiagnosed as bipolar and was still taking the wrong prescription medicine. And she was drinking. One day, shortly after Michael's death, she freaked out really bad, smashing up a hotel room. And when she got home, she was so angry and so out of control that she went into Scott's closet, grabbed all his designer clothes, Armani, Gucci, Dior, Louis Vuitton, Yves Saint Laurent, piled them all in the driveway, grabbed some lighter fluid, and set everything on fire. $80,000 worth of designer clothing, gone. This got her arrested. When she bailed herself out the next morning, she and Scott had to face an investigation from Child Protective Services, and then she was committed to a psych ward. It was only then that she was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, as was Scott. Two severely bipolar junkies with access to lots of money. Not a great combination. And then on November 21, 2007, Scott was arrested again for driving drunk. Now, this was a disaster for Velvet Revolver. They were supposed to go on a big international tour for their second album, Libertad. But once word got around that Scott was at risk, a bunch of dates were canceled. Japan refused the band entry outright. Australia was canceled. The four other guys in the band were pissed. These cancellations were going to cost them a lot of money. They demanded that, since this was Scott's fault, that he reimburse all of them for the lost revenue out of his own pocket. And you can imagine how well that went down with him. Scott was so angry that on March 20th, 2008, during a gig at the Carling Academy in Glasgow, Scotland, he unilaterally announced to the crowd that this was the last ever Velvet Revolver tour. Things hung together for eight more shows before one last gig in Amsterdam, and that date was April 1st, 2008. On April 28th, Scott was sentenced to 192 hours in jail for the DUI back in November. He was also required to complete an 18-month alcohol program and pay a $2,000 fine. For whatever reason, though, he only spent part of a day in jail. So Velvet Revolver was done, at least with Scott as their singer. But Stone Temple Pilots seemed to be an option. Mary organized a party that featured the DeLeo brothers. Scott was invited, and at the party there was this big reconciliation. And suddenly, STP was back in business. A promoter offered some big dollars that the band could hold it together long enough to play a long series of shows from June to December 2008, and to everyone's surprise, they did. And I was at one of those shows, standing off to the left side of the stage watching STP work their magic, and it was vintage Scott. I mean, the band was tight, and everyone was on. Scott became the song. At the same time, though, you could feel that there was a chasm between him and the other three guys. But they did make it through 73 shows, and when it was done, it was agreed that they should try to make another album. But first, Scott wanted to complete a second solo record that he called Happy in Galoshes. Not a commercial success by any means, but it allowed Scott to be creative on his own. He also released an album called A Compilation of Scott Weiland Cover Songs. That's actually the title. Through his website, covering everything from the Smiths and David Bowie to Nirvana, the Flaming Lips, and even the Stone Roses. Well, the Stone Roses song was rich. What was it? I am the resurrection. Don't waste your words, I don't need- 
The 2008-2009 STP reunion tour went well enough for Atlantic, STP's old record label, to suggest that it was time for another album. It had been nine years since Shangri-La-Di-Da, and the momentum was back, so why not relaunch STP for the whatever time this was? The result was a self-titled album released on May 21st, 2010. And damn, what a great first single. Between the Lines, from STP's 2010 self-titled album. Things finally looked stable for Scott Weiland. There were no drug issues. There were no money issues. His own record label was called Soft Drive Records. It seemed to be doing well. And he got involved in fashion, designing a line for a label called English Laundry with a designer named Christopher Wicks. Here's me talking to him about it. Why, why English Laundry? Um, I mean, obviously this is a, a, a great line of clothes. But what was it that attracted you to English Laundry as opposed to, you know, Calvin Klein or Tommy Hilfiger or maybe some Armani sub-brand? Um, well, there were opportunities uh, in the past. Um, and, uh, you know, I think sometimes things work out um, for the right reasons. And... Uh, that's where God comes in and uh, uh, you know I had the opportunity to meet uh, uh, Christopher Wicks um, uh, and he had the same sort of taste in clothing and the same sort of vision as far as, as far as what I wanted to do, which was uh, blend a sort of um, sophisticated uh, mid to late 70s Bowie look with a uh, mid 60s um, Rolling Stones kind of look, mm. but keeping it kind of, uh, you know, Savile Row. It went on like that for like half an hour, but still, he seemed to be on the right track. That interview, by the way, was in late August 2010. STP continued to exist too, and there was talk about returning to Velvet Revolver. And then there was an album of Christmas standards, and yet another new band called The Wildabouts. All was good, right? Well, no, Velvet Revolver didn't want him back, and frankly, neither did STP. As far as they were concerned, Wylan had gone back to his old ways. So on February 27th, 2013, they issued this one-line statement. Stone Temple Pilots have announced they have officially terminated Scott Wyland. In other words, they fired him. There were some back-and-forth lawsuits before everything settled down, and Wylan went to work with the Wildabouts. They crowdfunded an album entitled Blaster, which was released on March 31st, 2015. This was the first single. It's called White Lightning. Down. Down. 
Although Wylan claimed to have been off drugs for 13 years, there were plenty of indications that he was prone to slipping. YouTube videos of Wildabout gigs hinted something erratic. His third wife, Jamie, admitted that Scott was drinking, but that he had promised that he'd finally get it together as soon as the Wildabouts finished touring at the end of 2015. On December 1st, 2015, he and the Wildabouts pulled into Toronto. He did not look good. He did a couple of interviews before playing a club called Adelaide Hall. It would be his last gig. Less than 48 hours after that performance, Scott Wyland would be dead. On Thursday, December 3, 2015, the Wildabouts tour bus was in the parking lot of a Country Inn and Suites hotel in Bloomington, Minnesota. That afternoon, Scott had gone to the back of the bus to rest up before the gig. At 8.22, a 911 call was made about an unresponsive male. The band's tour manager had found Scott in the back bedroom. By the time help arrived, Scott was dead. In fact, rigor mortis had set in, meaning he had probably died up to six hours earlier. A variety of drugs were found on the bus. Xanax, anti-bipolar medication, a quantity of sleeping pills, some cocaine, MDA, and a few other things. An autopsy was ordered and came back a few weeks later. The result was mixed drug toxicity, cocaine, ethanol, which is alcohol, and that amphetamine known as MDA. The coroner noted other issues, cardiovascular disease, a history of asthma, and multi-substance dependency. The death was ruled an accident, but the cause of death was very similar to how his brother Michael died in 2007. On December 13th, there was a small funeral at the Hollywood Forever ceremony attended by friends and family. The location of his remains are unknown. Back in a moment. More of the ongoing history of new music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. I saw Scott Wyland perform perhaps a dozen times, mostly with the Stone Temple Pilots, but also with the Velvet Revolver and on his own. As a frontman, he was really one of the best. I recall one particular show back in the 90s. It was one of those blind date gigs sponsored by a brewery where Wyland's command of the stage was breathtaking. With nothing more than a microphone and the clothes on his back and his charisma, his moves demanded that all eyes be on him. And frankly, you could not look away. It's really hard to explain, but I left the show thinking that this dude was a true rock star. Then there was the conversation with a label executive who was in charge of minding Scott for one show. He was with Scott in the dressing room as he changed from his street clothes into what he was going to wear on stage. You could see and feel the transformation, he recalled. With every new piece of clothing he put on, he transformed a little more into a rock star. By the time he was dressed, he was a different person, someone on a different level, ready to perform. It was amazing to watch. On another occasion, I helped book a reunited Stone Temple Pilots for Edgefest at Downsview Park in Toronto back in 2008. Scott arrived separately from his other bandmates, standard operating procedure in those days to help keep the fragile peace, and I watched the show from the wings. Again, I was amazed at his confidence and his prowess as a performer. Dude was good. Certainly one of the best to emerge out of the alternative revolution of the 90s. Behind it all, though, were decades of insurmountable personal problems, drug abuse, 
the rehab stints that never took, the DUIs, jail, the mental illness, the on-again, off-again membership in STP, the brawling egos in Velvet Revolver, the bad marriages, the codependencies. How long could he keep dancing with these devils before it came time to pay up? Well, as we saw, it was only a matter of time. If you're looking for me, the best place to look is on my website, ajournalofmusicalthings.com. It's updated every single day with all kinds of music news and opinion on music and stories about the music industry and music recommendations. Plus, there's a free newsletter that comes out every weekday at 10 a.m. Eastern. You can also find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Google+. And should you want to email me, use alan at alancross.ca. That's A-L-A-N at A-L-A-N-C-R-O-S-S dot C-A. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the ongoing history of new music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast at iTunes and through Google Play.